You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to your one refuge from the twilight zone here at the conservative conscience. This is Daniel Horowitz, and we are designed to make you mad. Um, But you know what? The only thing worse than being screwed is being screwed and not knowing about it. So at least if I'm going to make you mad, I'm going to make you informed. And that's what we aim to do here. Um, you know, there's nothing really new here. To, to any regular listener, someone who's been following our work since the beginning, or at least for quite some time, you've been prepared for this day. But nonetheless, there's a lot of new information. And today I aim to update you and inform you on some individual issues going on. And then just kind of speak from the heart, maybe lament, strategize together, vent. We are facing the most unusual election ever. And I say that because we've never had a party in power that had this much power, officially controlling three branches. When I say three branches, I don't mean traditionally the constitutional branches, I mean House, Senate, White House, this much power in governorships and state legislatures, and on the one hand have done absolutely nothing with it. I know everyone has their list, but they're nothing fundamental that's enduring. And everything else, not only do they do nothing, they actually signal that they're going to do a tremendous amount, so they elicit the blowback from the other side. You have the Trump factor that just exacerbates it. And they're slated to get crushed in election, all dying on the hill of the other side, promoting the policies of the other cause. For for those of you who saw my piece this morning about the unfathomable, unconscionable budget betrayal to end all budget betrayals, perfidy to end all perfidies, Orwellian governance from Republicans to end all Orwellianism. You know exactly where I'm headed today. But we're caught between this weird heart in a rock place where uh, a um, rock in a hard place where on the one hand, Republicans are passing budget bills and everything is in the budget. That's everything. Right? Everyone knows Congress doesn't pass legislation anymore, except for once in a while when they pass liberal legislation. But they, they don't really pass much. It's all in the budget bills. They're passing bills that are indistinguishable from what Democrats would do if they were in charge, albeit they spend even more money than, than we ever did under Obama. <laughs> we have a betrayal in health care, betrayal in immigration. We don't have a vision on any issue. Spending is unconscionably above the Obama levels, way above them. We're going to get to that. And yet, it's going to be blamed on conservatism and blamed on our ideas. And we are headed, make no mistake about it, 
for a Watergate-style loss of 1974. I'm talking about 70, 80 seats in the House, which means you're not winning the Senate, if that would happen. Losing redistricting for a decade by losing governorships and state legislatures everywhere. All to promote everything the left believes in. So number one, we don't get the policies. Number two, we get crushed electorally and lose even some good guys who are going to get swept up in this. I've spoken to some, both challengers and members, that don't think they're going to make it in districts that will surprise you. We could talk about fake news all we want. But then there's the third aspect. Our people are still asleep. They're asleep about the impending doom. No, it's fake news. Okay, okay, you're going to win the election. Fine, all right, whatever. And number two, they're asleep about what's going on here. You know, I'm not a meteorologist, but I have experience in public policy and politics. And that's what you come here you know, to hear me for. You, you don't come to hear me pontificate about things that I'm not an expert on. And yet, all week, it's all been about the hurricane all the time. So the media hypes it. This always happens. It starts out a category four. And thankfully, you know, I'm not complaining. God, you know, thank God, it goes down to category one when it hits. It's still bad and disruptive. And, you know, but the bottom line is in a country this large, we have fires and floods and hurricanes. And if anything, we're actually on average, last year notwithstanding, um, but, you know, you you have years like that every 10 years or so. We've actually had fewer hurricanes in the last two decades than, than almost ever before. You're always going to have one or two Category 1s that hit that make landfall in Florida, North Carolina, or Louisiana, Texas, you know, in, in a given year. And it takes over everything. Congress is gone. You know, it's funny. They, they came in just for two days this week after being in a few days last week after being out for six weeks. And now they're going to be out the entire next week. Now, after you see what they're doing, it's a good thing they're not going to be in, 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 in session more. But the problem is you know, they're going to make sure to do the bad stuff. They don't need much time to do the bad stuff. But they're throwing away the ball. They have control. And I'm at peace with the fact that we've given so many ideas and strategies the last year to stave off this disaster that we warned is coming. And now people are starting to realize it. But what happens is, so then Trump makes comments, you know, so the, the left makes comments, oh, Trump's fault that we have hurricanes. Like, not everything dignifies a response or needs a response, right? Not everything that's said on Twitter is known by most of the country. Certain things need a response, certain things don't. But then Trump responds, we respond, the conservative media responds, and it's all about that. So now we're, we're, we're fighting over casualties in Puerto Rico and this hurricane. And meanwhile, Republicans have agreed to a triple budget betrayal. I'll explain in a minute. We've been talking about this for months and this specific bill for several weeks. And nobody's home. You know, I get it. I, I, I get that. The soap opera comes with the territory. I get it's not going to be all policy, all issues all the time. I get that 
people who have some sort of a following platform microphone column are going to use their space to opine on everything going on, whether it's culture, whether it's weather, whether it's sports, everything's going to get politicized. But it's like if you would draw a matrix, whatever is the most important political news of the day has the least coverage and fighting from conservative media and conservative groups and organizations and political groups and policy groups. And the most important things are just forgotten. We have Republicans literally throwing away historic control. You've never had this before. You've never had – usually the height of your control is the first two years. That's the best year for a president, even if he has two terms. It's the first two years of his first term. They're throwing it away. They're never going to get more power than this. They're never going to get a bigger mandate than this realistically. This is it. This is what we have to show for it. You know, before we get to the budget bill, let me just tell you, the election is really bad if we're held today. I don't need a generic ballot to tell you that it's like D plus 15, although some polls do show that. We have real live elections that we've had plus individual polling from house races that would blow your mind. Now, it's not necessarily going to be 100% uniform. Like, you could have a district that's traditionally more, you know, or redder that's more in trouble, and maybe one that's traditionally not as much as not. But I could tell you, let me just tell you, the Ted Cruz thing is real. Every poll, private and public, has him up about two to three points. Do I still think he's going to ultimately lose? No. But, you know, they're always ahead 10 points until they're ahead five, until they're ahead three, until they're ahead one, until they lose. Now, I do think of all states where the polling could underperform for Republicans based on the primary turnout that we saw, Republicans had pretty good turnout. Yeah, I'd be surprised if he loses, but you're missing the point. This is like the Confederacy in the spring of 1862. You know, yeah, they they were still winning some battles, looked good, but Dude, if the entirety of the landscape of the war is being fought on your stronghold, where you barely have control of your stronghold and nothing's being fought on the other side, you're not winning that war. You're not winning that. And if all the blue states are locked up, all the swing states, I mean Ohio, Michigan, places that we've actually been trending better, you know, statewide candidates are down 15 points. And then you're in a state like Tennessee – where Trump won by 26 points. He won like all but three of 100 counties or however, however many counties are in Tennessee. Um, is now, you know, Marshall Blackburn's only a couple points up there. This is really bad. Dave Bratt is in big trouble. And um, like I told you, I had a hard to hard conversation with a friend of mine running uh, for Congress and. Uh, Let's just say I, I don't know the last time a Democrat has won that district, and, and he doesn't think he's going to make it. So, you know, all these thumbsuckers are like, oh, fake news, we're going to win. Wh- why lie to yourself? Especially when it's not even like – there's one thing if 
We were like, we repealed Obamacare. We did the 25 things we want to do in immigration. We reoriented our foreign policy and military engagement and deterrent. We did welfare reform. We cut spending. Yeah, I, I would kind of be biased to lie to myself to say, no, we're going to win. We're going to win, even if we're going to lose. But <laughs> what? We're, we're going to lie about horse race politics to protect an outcome that's not even ours? So that's, that's the first thing we need to recognize. This is an SOS. And, and, and really, as time goes on, we're, the, the number of things that could change the trajectory of this election are really limited. It's baked. This is nothing new. We had special elections. They all swung 10 to 20 to 30 points to, to the Democrats. They lost dozens of state legislative races in, in deep red districts. Then you had, I mean, this all started, you know, this has been going on for a while. It's not just the last couple months. In other words, you, 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 you could have a, an election where one party wins, and then you have a two-year interval between that and the next election. So, um, you could have a scenario where generally the trend from the previous election holds, meaning the party that just won is more favorable, but then the last couple months it turns. In this case, it was opposite, the opposite. Really, after a few months, Republicans fell out of favor, and it started a lot after health care. It recovered in like – I want to say really with the tax cuts in December, January, the economic news, they were doing good um, you know, for most of the, most of the time, early part of 2018. And then it was really until Parkland, when they completely lost control of the narrative, when they allowed the Democrats to own them on gun control rather than voting on all the ideas we had, all the ideas we had to um, you know, make this about criminal justice to form, have legislation countermanding all these keep juveniles out of jail. A counter narrative, nothing, and that and it really just went downhill from there. It, it was bad before we had a chance to come back. And by the way, it, remember it was January when I said I said that the tax cuts were actually popular then. Democrats were floundering. Bernie Sanders was like, "Oh well, my only criticism is that you didn't make it permanent. Why didn't we have a bill to make it permanent with budget reconciliation?" instructions that would have enabled them to do a, another round without the filibuster. And and that's it. They refused to do it. And now, like a last-ditch effort, they're like introducing a bill to make them permanent, but there's no budget reconciliation, so it's not going anywhere anyway when no one cares about the tax cuts anymore. But we had the Virginia elections, and I warned at the time. I said, you know, and, and those aren't special elections. That That is Virginia's normal election. You could say it's kind of an odd year, you know, 2017, November 2017, but that is when Virginia holds their statewide elections. The governor, uh, lieutenant governor, attorney general, all the statewide officials, House of Delegates, maybe some local races. And it's not just that they lost. Yeah, you know, usually the party that's in power loses the next year in the Virginia, New Jersey odd year elections. It's been happening in, you know, recent cycles. It's the areas that they lost. 
Chesterfield County. They lost Republican suburban areas. And I said, you don't understand. You're getting the worst of all worlds here. If you don't write that ship, and I've given so many ideas. I didn't wait till the last minute. I begged the Freedom Caucus leadership and all these guys. They claim they passed down my articles at their meetings. You know, five-point strategies here. Have a new contract with America, new messaging. Step away. Distinguish yourselves in these ways so your members don't get swallowed up. You remember all that, my blueprints and everything. I sat down with them. I crafted things. Went nowhere. Oh, fake news. We're winning the election. We're winning the election. And again, whether they were going to win or lose, they should have done this anyway because we were losing on policy. Now we're going to lose both policy and the election. All this for what? For what? I, I, just, I just don't get it. So I warned. I warned that when we had the – so, you know, this was obvious to anyone who understands politics that you have the filibuster. And Republicans refuse to force talking filibusters. You don't, you don't have to end the filibuster. Just use the two-speech rule, limit them to two speeches. You could wear them down. They don't do it. Nothing. So I said that the reason they're not doing it is not because they can't do it. It's because they don't want to. It's because they share the Democrat values on immigration, on health care, on spending, on welfare. You name it. They'll just you know pick one deviation to have a fake fight over. But they're fundamentally the same. right? It's not because they can't. It's they won't. You're, you're, you're never going to get more power than you have now. And you know, you're not going to pass anything legislatively, so the budget is it. And we came into this presidency with a couple of budget inflection points and a debt ceiling. Both major places to have an impact. So, you know… We had the spring of 2017 that was finishing up the FY 2017 budget. They gave the Democrats everything they wanted, everything they ever wanted. Then, you know, they said, no, no, that, that's kind of like last year's budget. That's Obama's era. Let's just give it to them. But we're going to have the real Trump budget. Trump proposes a budget proposal, the deepest cuts since the 80s, all, everything. Mick Mulvaney, the OMB director, says we're going to fight in September. Come September, it wasn't even like a footnote. They passed massive um, spending packages along with the regular budget, massively increased spending, and insulted the president by every single account in the Department of Education, HHS, that he planned to cut. They actually increased spending. And this is all over the Obama era level. You know, I remember first reporting on the 2009-2010 budgets. Like it shocked the consciousness how how high the spending was. Now we would die to go back to the to those levels. And they kicked it to December and then they you know, did it again in December. And then you had the ultimate budget betrayal in February and March, a one-two punch where they vitiated the one spending cuts that we ever got in the Budget Control Act when Republicans only had control of the House. And this is going to be a theme of today's show. You're going to see how we the more power Republicans get, the more liberal they get, the more they regress. So in February, they busted the budget caps and then um, just a blank check on the debt ceiling for another year. So it was a one-two punch, and then you know a month later they had the omnibus codifying it and increasing spending across the board. 
and all the while not using it to address the emergencies of drugs and gangs and the illegals and, and, and harnessing some sort of a message of stolen sovereignty. We're not going to allow people to come in here and take advantage of Americans, steal our franchise, steal our birthright, steal our welfare, steal our schools, steal, steal our identity. In all these cases, every day there's another – I mean there's another story we could harness the same way the left harnesses um, Parkland. But this is for real we, because this is so redressable. You don't have to have foreign nationals in your country. There is no right to immigrate. All the while the courts are going insane. You know, just today, you know, remember I had my list of 13 cases where courts are mandating that Trump continue lawless unilateral policies of Obama? You know, a lot of people are saying, well, Daniel, it's the same thing, you know. Um, you know, uh, you know, sometimes we went to the court to stop Obama's policies. Uh, so courts are stopping, you know, Trump, you know. Yeah, but there's a difference because Trump, because uh, Obama initiated them without legislation. Most of these are not Trump's initiation. He's just merely just ending what Obama lawlessly started. They're not new. That's a big difference. Whether you agree with the policies or not is a different story. But in terms of legally, it's a very simple thing. But, you know, we have the whole court issue where we refuse to stand up and say that there's no validity to nationwide injunctions, universal injunctions. So we go and follow them. Now, finally, the House Judiciary Committee has a bill dealing with it, but Republicans as a party won't embrace it and harness it by Camerly and pass it on the floor and the president message it and whatever. So it's not going to go anywhere, but I'll, maybe we'll get to that later or next week. I wrote a piece on it yesterday. I'll link to it in show notes. A little piece of good news there. And then we just get drunk on the soft bigotry of low expectations. Well, we moved an embassy to Jerusalem. Well, look, if you look at a number of these things, they're not enduring victories. You know, when, when Reagan talked about just being one generation away from losing our freedom, what he meant was that you could always perpetuate tyranny. Tyranny and bad policies perpetuate themselves because they create distortions, and then you have to deal with that. It becomes a reality. There's a limit, even if you have conservatives, what you can do thereafter. Whereas if you just turn the switch off, you could always just turn it back on. You know, as I was speaking to a friend yesterday, we were talking about like, you know, um, you know, some of the things we got. And, you know, one of the most welcome things foreign policy wise is that we no longer obsess about the cursed two state solution in Israel. But, you know, again, I mean, the minute Democrats take over, which we're ensuring they will, they'll just turn that switch back on. Whereas Obama's foreign policies, we're still dealing with the fallout from them. Even the Iran deal, we didn't finally get out of it, but the damage is done. The Bush and Obama policies of immigration, despite Trump's good instincts on both Islamic immigration and meaning getting our troops on their shores and their boots on our shores, the backward strategy of refereeing Afghanistan and Iraq, I mean – just stupidity. Um, you know, uh, Bob Woodward's new book, I didn't read it, but from the excerpts of it, Trump actually comes out good in his fights with Mattis and these other jerks. Um, but ultimately, you know, he doesn't overrule them on his uh, intuition on foreign policy. But, you know, it, it's, it's, it's scary. Like, what do you do once you're entangled? And it's like, oh, we can't pull. I mean, that's the problem. 
So why am I telling you this? Because our expectations are too low. Meaning you can't have it that when the Democrats get in there, they floor the, the, the engines. And when we're in there, we're like, well, you know, this is what we could do. It's better than nothing. Well, you're right. Ephemerally, for that period, it's better than nothing. But then in the long run, it's meaningless because it just gets countermanded. And, and that, that's, that's, that's the problem when you don't utilize the time while you have it. And frankly, if you utilize the time properly, you'd be more likely to keep the power. You know, I'm not telling you, you know, no matter what, in this polarized era, even before the polarization, the incumbent party always lost the um, election. You know, the one exception was 2002. That was just because of 9-11. But there's a difference between losing and losing. I mean, there's a difference between setting you back a generation. And then, you know, also you put yourself out of scoring position for the next time. So in other words, like, let's say, you know, you don't do as badly in the Senate this time, in the House this time. There's less ground to take back. And then, you know, you know, if you have a good year in 2020 with the presidential election. And then, of course, you don't necessarily have to lose all the state elections and lose redistricting. Remember, you know, I can't believe it. It feels like it was yesterday when Republicans lost in 2006, 2008. I remember that. And... At the time, we were scared. Oh my gosh, Pelosi! These people are so radical. You know, the the funny thing is that the the Democrats who won were anti homosexual agenda, anti illegal immigration. Those were all the guys who won. Now they're winning with the most radical people around. Not because most people, at least in the suburban areas, necessarily want that. Like I always say, they don't want to embrace Hamas and ban straws. But we haven't made that case and given that narrative to them. They're upset about the status quo, which 95% of it we'd agree with. I mean, why should we own the status quo? The status quo, most of it is not what we believe in anyway. It's just a bunch of noise. But they're sick and tired of the noise and the drama. They're always going to vote for the alternative. Until we break out of this cycle, the alternative is always going to be the party out of power. That's the Democrats now. They're going to win big. They're going to win big. It didn't have to be this way. Possibly, it doesn't still have to be that bad. I mean, a lot of races are still close. We could give suburban voters a narrative. But they're not. They're going to be out of session. They're just running out the clock and giving the Democrats everything they want. Which brings me to the details of this budget bill. In December 2015, after Republicans not only had the House, but that was the first year in 2015 that they had the Senate in addition to the House, Obama was still president. I want you to have – I want you to get a certain perspective you're not going to hear elsewhere with the soft bigotry of low expectations. Democrats had bigger expectations for Republican achievements than conservative organizations did. We're like – well, we can't risk a shutdown because Obama's president, and he's going to veto it, so uh, Democrats get what they want. We need the presidency. Okay, that, that was basically the thumbsuckers. So 
you think it's a you know foregone conclusion the Democrats like we're going to crush it. When when Paul Ryan gave the Democrats everything they wanted in that budget, and we thought that was the big betrayal at the time, Chuck Schumer was quoted as saying the following. If you would have told me this year that we'd be standing here celebrating the passage of an omnibus bill with no poison pill riders at higher spending levels above sequesters than even the president requested, I wouldn't have believed it. But here we are. Almost anything the Republican leadership in the Senate achieved this year, they achieved on Democrat terms. Democrats had an amazingly good year. Okay, that's Chuck Schumer. Hold that thought. Fast forward. Now they have the House, Senate, and the White House, and the veto power, which is never wielded. And you have a triple betrayal. So obviously we've been warning about the general budget betrayal ever since the last one in March when Trump said never again. And then we're like, well, I was like, well, it's kind of Lucy in the football. This is the fourth time. I don't see why the fifth will be different, but let's start a movement for the next six months every day to pressure the president into threatening a veto and developing a narrative. But of course, every day of the last six months was a different drama and every excuse not to focus on the important issues was utilized by almost every other person and every other colleague I have on the policy side, on the political side, on the media side. So for the last couple of weeks, we were warning that basically what they were doing is, you know, they were always going to pass a CR, just a general autopilot, giving the Democrats everything they want. And again, status quo is not good. This is why I say, you know, we want Congress to be in session if they're going to do good things, because we we're owning the status quo. We don't believe in the status quo. How much of the government do you like now? Oh, we moved the embassy to Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah, but okay, you know, for real. I would venture to say both my liberal and conservative listeners, all of you, like, no, no one likes what's going on in government now. But, but for conservatives, certainly, should we have to own this? But we do. Now, you always have the problem. Once you're in power, you own it. But at least do everything you can to change it so you could run on what you did and not die for the other side's ideology, like we always do. So nothing. We have an emergency at our border. Nothing. Nothing. But it, but but. So I always knew they were going to do that. But what what is shocking is why I call it a triple betrayal is this. They had this. So they're passing these mini bus bills. They're very proud of themselves that they're going to. Meaning, usually they pass, um, you know, a CR, and then eventually just, just an autopilot, and then eventually they get just the new, the new bill for the fiscal year with the line items, all in an omnibus bill. This year, they they passed out of both houses a number of the individual twelve appropriation bills. They didn't pass them individually. They did what they called mini buses, so they did three or four departments at a time. Three or four probes bills in one package. Regular order. Look, we're doing great. So in addition to the CR, they're actually successfully passing. And yesterday they fed, they passed the first one, sending it to the president. I guess you'd say it's the least controversial. VA, military construction, energy has bad provisions in it. Too much spending. But, you know, they're, they're um, passing them. Now – there's a reason why – now, you might say, well, isn't that good? We're doing regular order. 
<laughs> regular order is only good. The idea is that if you have Republican Party platform budgets, presumably when the Republicans are in charge, so then you want to do each one individually so they, you know, they can't hijack the military and tie, you know, and everything is, well, we can't shut this down, that, that. We could have a fight on Department of Education and HHS and things like that without the military as a hostage. And I gave a strategy. I gave a strategy. You guys remember it. I wrote an article on it. I did shows on this in July. I said they need to spend the entire July messaging, introducing a security package. Defense tied to Homeland Security, which usually aren't together, but there's no reason they shouldn't be messaging-wise. Fund all of our defense, immigration, homeland priorities. That's where you have the riders ending the asylum invasion, the UAC invasion, the sanctuary cities, the court problem, the wall, ICE. Put it all in there and spend an entire month and hold the both houses, not for fake, but for real, in session in August every day. And have every dollar spent raise money for, through the RNC, pounding as particularly the vulnerable Senate de- Democrats and red states on with Willie Horton style ads every day of the week. You see, the good economy is not working, but this would get people to respond. There's reasons for that, by the way, in the times we live in, why the economy is not going to dictate. But and, and then we said, and then when you batter them into submission, passing that, then you could sever off the non-defense discretionary, you know, bloated bureaucracies and have a separate fight on spending and welfare. You. Without the hostage of security. Okay, that was the idea. I wanted to give that over to you so you could appreciate the profundity of the perfidy they just did. They did the exact opposite. So we warned you about this labor HHS education minibus bill. That was one of them. That's the most offensive because it has the worst agencies and programs and values that we don't believe in. Um, Department of Education obviously is loaded with it. Labor HHS has all of Obamacare, Title X abortion funding. And believe it or not, it's also one of the most vital for immigration because HHS houses the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is resettling these MS-13 punks from from Central America into our communities and, and destroying this country. That's the linchpin of it all. That's where you put your rider. Now, let me give you a piece of information many of you might not be aware of. Congress has not passed an individual HHS labor education bill since 1996. There's a reason for that. Now, you might be asking, well, what do you mean? How do they fund it? Well, no. Like I said, they ultimately fund it in the omnibus, meaning it's ultimately the bad stuff is in there. But they never did it in a standalone bill. It, practically, it, it, it doesn't make a difference, but symbolism – just simply because Republicans had enough respect for their platform and phony campaign promises that they wouldn't openly fund all the things that they say that they don't believe in. I mean, they do. Ultimately, it's ensconced in an omnibus bill, but it wouldn't be that blatant. It was always too controversial to pass it. It's no longer controversial. Things have gotten so bad, they just blatantly give the Democrats what they want. So I want you know, and I'm going to get back to that in a minute. So that's bad enough. You had this bill moving separately, and you had a CR 
right? That was, so the the mini bus would be the long term funding for the remainder of fiscal year 2019, and the CR would be the stopgap temporary for all 12 appropriation bills and all departments and agencies. What they're doing is they're merging the HHS labor education, the worst component of the long term bill, with the short term CR that sells us out without riders on immigration. Number two, and then number three. They tacked on to HHS labor and education something that's never been done, defense. So meaning they wouldn't tack it on to benefit us to immigration and Homeland Security, which is much more in its purview. Defense starts with Homeland Security after all, and they tack it on to the Department of Education and HHS, abortion, refugee resettlement, and Obamacare. They increase funding for HHS by 2.6% over the omnibus levels. Meaning it's not just locking it in that we didn't fight, you know, the extra spending. It contains 286 million for Title 10 abortion funding, 100 million for Obama's teen pregnancy prevention program that he made up. They removed a provision from the House version. So they went to conference on this bill. It had one good provision, you know, because HHS oversees adoption agencies. Really, government shouldn't control this, but they do. Um, So basically, you know, people, adoption agencies are being forced to hand over kids to so-called gay couples. Now, I don't care if you're a liberal listener. I don't care if you're secular. I don't care if you don't believe in the Bible. That has nothing to do with anything. What about the freaking right to choose? You know, we always say, oh, illegals are brought here of no fault of their own. Well, which for young kids is true, but it's also of no fault to the American citizens. So, you know, when the two run, when the two principles run up against each other, it has to yield to sovereignty. But this is a true of no fault of their own. Taking kids and putting them in that type of home, at least, I mean – even if you're totally okay with homosexuality, you're totally, I mean, it's awesome, it's great. And you think they should, you know, we should recognize this as a marriage. But the notion that it's 100% all things equal, 100% on par, I mean, it's like, oh, no different. I mean, give me a freaking break. If, if we're in that point, we don't deserve to be a civilization. But nonetheless, that's, you know, that, that ship has sailed. This was just some sort of refuge, just allow religious organizations to have a religious exemption. So they had that provision that was taken out. Now, you might say, well, Daniel, you know, I don't know. You're kind of getting a little feisty. You really think we should put your immigration riders onto a budget bill? You know what's funny? There actually was one immigration rider they stuck in last night in the final conference report for this minibus labor HHS education bill that will also house the CR for the other branches and defense, wrapping themselves up in the troops. Sick, sickening. And that is, there's a provision demanding that ORR come up with a strategy to reunite the families. (laughs) We have a government of, by, and for foreign nationals. Talk about a breach of the entire premise of the social contract. Nothing for Americans 
on any facet of this invasion. But we're, we're concerned about incentivizing and encouraging the illegals. And what's amazing, you could plot this on a graph. I have a post on the same day where CBP comes out with data showing that because of the political clamor on behalf of families, family units are invading at a record levels. More than we've ever seen in the month of August, ever. 38% increase from last month. And something like 140% increase since um, August of 2017. I, I, I don't know what to tell you. Orwell couldn't have written a book like this. You know what's amazing about the spending? So it, it's so gratuitous because the agencies are already drowning in cash. See, what happened was no one really thought realistically that with Republicans in control of all three branches, and especially after Trump's budget proposal, that they would bust the budget caps and go the opposite direction. So agencies actually started out fiscal year 2017, which started out you know October 1st, 20, uh, fiscal year 2018, October 1st, 2017. They started out preparing for the lower levels. All of a sudden, midway through the year, the government got an extra $140 billion, but not it, it, it's not over a full year. It was even worse than that. It was over a half a year. It was concentrated because that time already passed. So they're already flush with cash, and now we're increasing spending even more. I want you to – I want to go back to this 1996 point because I think this is really the crux of my entire message. See, I guess I'm one of the few people in this business that's not a frog in the boiling water. I don't get acclimated. I remember things. I have a certain compass, a political compass, compass, ideological compass, to recognize how the left is schlepping us inexorably to the left, but we still kind of shadow box them, and we don't even realize where we are. Remember in 1996 where Republicans came in and said spending was out of control, government's out of control? That was the last year they passed the labor HHS education bill. That was the year of welfare reform. That was the year of IRA-IRA. That's the acronym for the famous immigration enforcement bill. That was a year when the entire federal budget was $1.5 trillion. Now it's $4.2 trillion. Now I know I haven't – to be fair, I didn't adjust for inflation, but still. So it's you know, $1.5 trillion is now 2 2.2, whatever it would be. It's not 4.2. Department of Education, in that very labor HHS bill that they passed, that very bill they passed 22 years ago, HHS was $33 billion. Now it's $90 billion. And that's the discretionary spending, meaning that's what it costs to run the agency. But the entitlement and welfare programs that are promulgated from the agency, so if you add in total costs, mandatory and discretionary, right, entitlement and discretionary spending, so – it was $333 billion now, then, then, $333 billion. Now it's well over $1.2 trillion. Department of, Department of Education was $24 billion. Now it's $71 billion. What have we gotten? What have we won in our lifetime? I, I want you to keep this in mind when you look at these ephemeral statistics about Trump and the judges and the Jerusalem embassy and some 
regulations. It's in the scheme of things. It's ephemeral and it's a drop in the bucket. The regulations, most of them are 11th hour Obama regulations. The last tip of the the end of his thing, a lot of them weren't even implemented. A couple of them are important, but the court stopped it. Or mandated he continue it and he listened to them. The fundamental market distortions of Obamacare, Dodd-Frank, Sarbanes-Oxley, ethanol, cafe standards, Federal Reserve that, that, that kill our economy, our, our market system are still in place. Most of Obama's other regulations are in place. And at some point, you cross the point of no return. Like, you know, if someone hits a 400-foot a home run instead of a 450-foot home run, it doesn't matter. You know, so we, we, we removed the last 50 yards worth with the, you know, it's, okay, so what? The one great thing we had was reforming one of the 77 means-tested programs in 96, and, and that reform is countermanded. It's gone with interest beyond belief. Interest payments are surging, by the way. You know, you might hear um, in the news that, oh, man, the you, you know, in, in, we now have the budget results from 11 months, right? We have 11 complete months of this fiscal year through August. September is the last month of fiscal year 2018, and we're already running a $900 billion deficit after 11 months. Um, that's $233 billion higher than last year with all 12 months. You know, so we'll be about a trillion dollars, let's say. So we'll be about $330 billion or so more than last year. And last year itself, we increased spending by $128 billion over Obama's final year. Now, you're going to hear the media blame the tax cuts but the reality is, if you look at August, revenues were down by only $7 billion, And a lot of that was because of just um, shifting in uh, transfers from the Federal Reserve. Outlays were up $100 billion. And interest in particular is really soaring, as, as we warned. So, so that's where we are there. <clears throat> but you, you look at regulations. You look at anything. The left wins. The courts, you guys already know. Oh, Trump's appointed record numbers of judges. So <clears throat> let's just real, real briefly. And again, this is not Trump's fault. I mean, it, but it's our fault for not doing what it takes to actually change the courts and fooling ourselves that this is um, a solution. So I'm just trying to get the exact numbers here for Trump's judicial nominees. So... Trump has appointed, so far they confirmed, 26 circuit judges, 26 out of 177. Um, and, and, and those are 100, those are active judges. You know, it doesn't include the senior judges. So, you know, really it's not as much of a percentage as that seems. Um, l- l- let me just – I'm just trying to eyeball this. So out of the 26 or so, just recognize – so first of all, two of them – are going to be filling Gorsuch's seat and Kavanaugh's seat. And we're told that they're amazing. <laughs> so, you know, the reality with that is you're just treading water. I mean, you're you're filling their vacancies. We lost Janice Rogers Brown on the D.C. Circuit. She was the best judge we had there. We lost Boggs, who was the best in the Sixth Circuit. In the Fifth, we had, we, we had some pretty... Um, 
pretty good ones. But um, you know, we we lost uh, a lot of good ones there. The majority of the retirees were among the best judges. So it's a very misleading statistic. And also, they're not on the circuits that that we really need. We don't understand. We're so distracted, we don't even care. I'm not doing this to dispirit you. I'm doing it because it doesn't have to be this way. Because the public doesn't want Cortez, whatever her name is, and Bernie Sanders-style socialism. Not, not a majority. Way too many people. But it's not yet at 51%. That Overton window keeps shifting and, and closing. But we could jam our feet in there. We could still win. We have an agenda we could run on. We don't have the soldiers. We have a bankrupt movement. The best I could do for now is propose these ideas, speak the truth, explain what, why what we're doing is bad policy, bad politics, explain what we can be doing. The next step, and I've been struggling, is to gather enough people who agree with me. I can't do anything alone. I've been having conversations. I spoke with Jim Jordan last night. I'm going to try to have him on the show next week. He's the only one yelping about um about this budget. The, the, the need to have an immigration fight. The need to do something to win this election. I mean, it, it's amazing. This bill has like $7 billion in it to treat opioid. And a Congressional Research Service report just came out. They, they did a report on MS-13. That was the topic. The threat of MS-13. And you know they vouched for everything I've been telling you that since around 2012, 2013, MS-13 started to become the retail side distributors for the drugs coming from the Mexican drug cartels. Everyone agrees we had a UAC crisis around that time. Everyone agrees the UACs brought in MS-13 because a lot of them became MS-13 and a lot of them served as cover to bring them in. So wherever you have the MS-13 crisis, which even the media is reporting on, there is your drug crisis. And yet we refuse to make that an issue. This is a huge issue. 72,000 people died. And we allow the left to define the narrative. We have the dumbest, most pathetic people working in conservative politics. And of course, all the while, I'm using that term very lightly. Conservatism has no meaning anymore. No meaning. No meaning whatsoever. <sighs> man, man, am I pissed. And, and, and the reason why I'm so miserable, I tell you this all the time, it's not because I think we're screwed. It's because I think it doesn't have to be this way, but I feel a sense of urgency. I have some friends. Um, I have some friends that are like, look, I came to peace with this knowing we're done. And I guess we are done, but it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. You know, another thing that's very emblematic of this thesis we're talking about today, and we've been talking about it, you know, getting the worst of both worlds, all the vices of control, but none of the virtues. We die for their causes. We nominated the most milquetoast 
legally mainstream, and that's the words all of his supporters used in Brett Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court. All to avoid a fight with the Democrats. And I'm just laughing at how we have to crawl over glass to get this guy confirmed. Now, Dianne Feinstein has this late, last-minute thing that she has on him. Charges of sexual impropriety in high school. I'm not saying it's true. I'm not saying it's, it's you know, it could be bull, bull garbage coming from, uh, what's her name? From, from Feinstein. But that's the point. Democrats will slit our throats anyway. Right? They will fight to the death no matter what. Either we could speak on our terms, define our, our narrative, or validate their narrative and lose anyway. It just it is shocking what has happened the last year and a half and going on two years. How we're so drunk. We've lost our way for 18 months. And I'm not articulating this the same way Ben Sass or some others will, oh, we lost our way with Trump. Trump is who he is. It's that we didn't take advantage of what could have been, despite his flaws, which were baked into the cake. Imagine if we had a movement every minute doing what I want to do on the whole illegal immigration, drugs, gangs, national security, Middle Easterners coming in, and make wrap that all into the budget and massive spending, then Trump will... In other words, Trump's impulsive. He's going to respond to whatever on his plate. If you put that on his plate, so then the Democrats and the media are going to attack us on that, but I'd rather them attack us at our strong point than at our weak point. Absent that, he's going to venture to whatever they're talking about and fall into the trap every time. And suburban voters get turned off, rightfully or wrongfully, but that's what's happening. Doesn't have to be that way. This is just just a random side point I wanted to share with you that ties into our point here about how we operate in the orbit of the left. Their parlance, their premises, their way of thinking about issues, their way of focusing about issues. So... I was watching this House Judiciary markup yesterday that, you know, for for the purpose of covering the good news that they were passing a bill to end universal injunctions from courts. But they had some crappy bills they threw in, of course, as well. One of them was uh, reauthorizing the stupid criminal justice deform program, a whole other thing, the Second Chance Act, all these grant programs like Common Core style, like a carrot approach to the states to basically get them to, you know— rehabilitate, a.k.a. early release programs for prisoners. Um, That was like one of the first jailbreak programs that passed in 2007 under Bush. Whatever, that's one thing. So anyway, I didn't even realize this was on the agenda, but they they started the hearing not with this, but with this patent bill. And my my lovely wife, um, love of my life, was working in my home office. She was with me. She's, um, She's a technical illustrator, and you know now she's mainly stay at home. Three boys is enough to you know three boys and running a home is 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 insane, but she does a little bit of contract work on the side, and so she was doing some illustrations uh, a couple feet away from me, and she heard the hearing on, and they were talking about a patent bill. What was the patent bill? 
it was to create like some sort of commission to study and promote more f- women and minority patents. And, you know, you heard Goodlatte, the Republican chairman, like literally using their premises, their language. And it was just amazing. Look, my yes, my wife is conservative, but I mean, she doesn't live and breathe this stuff. I mean, most of this stuff is more just rote common sense. It's not coming loaded with preconceived, you know, political alignments. And she just like piped up, um, you know, because she knows about the patent office and this stuff. I was like, what in the world? Like, I, why would anyone do this? I mean, this is all merit based. That's all. That's the whole point of a patent um, is, 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 is merit, like more than anything else. Like, why would you do this? It's so stupid. And I was thinking, like, there's certain things in politics that even conservative Republicans that are elected think, like, oh, that's untouchable, like that. Everyone. And really, like, ironically, it's the least touchable. I mean, it's the most touchable. It's, it's, most people are like, what? I mean, most people aren't like that. We need to, like, find out how many women, what, what. We have an oligarchy. There's one party. But it's worse than one party. If we just had one party, the American people would rebel within a year against these people. Because you wouldn't have this fake opposition to shield them from the anger by echoing and taking on the blame for their stuff. I mean, rather than conservatives now focusing on this budget emergency, which is not just budget, it's every issue is wrapped up into this. Every success, not just for this year, but for the remainder, even if Trump has two terms, depends on this. Where the hell is the Heritage Foundation? Jim Jordan made that point to me last night. Where are they? I'm one person with no staff. They have 300 people. What are they doing on a single issue? I'll tell you what they're doing. They're promoting Soros' crime agenda. The single biggest issue, we could, if if we had our side against that, we could slam, we could slaughter the left on crime. Crime speaks to people. I hinted to this before, and, and this is this is really a whole deep discussion. There's a lot of factors, but I believe that nowadays with the numb-minding saturation of information, good economic news no longer speaks to people because it just – A, our lives are just so prosperous just because of technology. You know, it just doesn't matter as much. I'm, I'm just speaking the truth here, and – also, in just conjunction with just all the negativity and everything in social media, it's more values. It's more who you are. So I think like security, values, things like that shake people up more. And, and that's why I always you know, wanted to make this a values fight, a security and safety fight more so than, than economics. But um, just purely politically, not that economics aren't important. We have a lot of good ideas, and I think there's ways to sell them. But just if you want to talk about lead messaging to pick one thing to have a fight over, I think that's what it should be. And um, that's that's where we are. I don't know what it's going to take to wake our people up from the slumber. I don't know. I, I honestly think that Congress could pass like a wholesale amnesty bill tomorrow. And maybe it will be like the second lead story for like 24 hours among conservatives. 
and then they'll go back to you know whatever pseudo cultural weather sports Mueller stuff, and that's it. I, I, I have a lot more to say, but we're gonna we're gonna stop it here. Congress is at a session next week. We have a full week to get to, to rile people up. Everyone's asking, what could you do? Well, number one, call the White House and say, you voted for Trump. He will be betraying every promise, and he will look as impotent as every pathetic Republican that the voters rejected if he signs this bill. I think that's more impactful than calling anyone in Congress. That's where it is now. I mean, the, the, the goose is cooked. Keep in mind, this bill is usually like Democrats are so extreme that they oppose everything. I mean, think about it. I, I just, just to give you a conceptual understanding of how bad this, these budget bills are, are the depth of the, of the duplicity from Republicans. Typically, Democrats vote against everything. It's so bad. Every Democrat is voting for this. So even if uh, even if half the Republicans, you know, take a hall pass like fake to oppose this, I mean, this thing is going to easily pass. It's 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 done. But it's not done. The president has a veto. He has a bully pulpit. He has a veto and a bully pulpit. Use it. Give a primetime speech, give a series of primetime speeches explaining some of the stuff we've been explaining all year. Tied into the drug crisis, tied into the gang crisis. Tied into Molly Tibbetts and the murders and the rapes and the criminal aliens problems and the identity theft and the illegals fleecing us, the schools. Speak to that suburban voter. It doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. I, I don't know what else to tell you other than I'm going to try to have this dream constitutional convention-style meeting of the minds, at least among like-minded people that might have some in to having some sort of influence or megaphone to try to sort this out. But, I mean, it's not going to happen before the election. I think God's salvation comes in the blink of an eye. You know, we see that. The, the, the cycle changes on a dime. We live in such a fast-paced world that you can never envision what's going to happen. I, I do believe that for better or for worse, there will be opportunities in the news, events in the world that will give us opportunities to have inflection moments to right the ship. I don't think it's lost, not completely. But what my goal here, and I'm struggling humbly, I need your help. Send me your ideas, is to at least create a nascent movement with some ability to get on the map to utilize those inflection moments when they come up to at least make a difference. Because right now, we don't even have the ability, even if God gives us that opportunity, to seize it. There's nothing there. There is nothing there. You know, it's like, you know, you have a war and, you know, one side's winning they think there's a capital that's heavy. They're, they're down to the other country's capital. They think it's heavily fortified. 
And then they come to realize that there's literally nobody there. And they could just walk in without firing a shot. That's what the Democrats have recognized this generation. The trench warfare they were fighting with Republicans for a generation was all built on a lie. There was never anything there. And now the more they charge, the more Republicans run. And they can't even hold ground that Democrats held just a short while ago. It's amazing when you compare this to the 90s. There's no vision. I'm at peace, despite the fact that I don't even believe in the Republican Party. Didn't want this in the first place. And doing everything I can to try to craft a vision to ensure the election doesn't turn out that way. But at this point, there's very little that could stop it. But there's really nothing that will stop it because they won't act. It's, um, I don't know. And by the way, one other point that just embodies this, this whole, whole discussion, is Obamacare. Healthcare is really an underreported issue. Republicans managed the brilliance. L- l- let me give you a quote from a friend of mine that sums up this podcast, sums up the election, and sums up, but most embodied with Obamacare. John Hayward, good guy at, at Breitbart. We overlapped a little bit at Red State years ago. Um, you know, we were tweeting back and forth on Republicans tossing this election, and he, he had an amazing way of putting it. He, here's what he, he tweeted at me. Republicans have always had a rare gift for paying the political price associated with revolutionary change without actual, without actually accomplishing anything revolutionary. They're savaged for actions they were intimidated out of taking. Wow, is that beautiful. <laughs> um, that's what Obamacare was. They could have said nothing, or they could have, alternatively, come in on January 20th, and at the time actually wrote an article, December 2016, I said how they could repeal Obamacare from a position of strength on day one. I had a whole strategy. I had messaging. I said, because Congress convenes January 3rd, before inauguration, I said they could tee up budget reconciliation. They could tee it up because they already had control, pass it. And have it waiting on the desk of Donald Trump the minute after his inaugural ball, January 20th. And then it's done. Done. You do it. It's done. You have two years to work on on, on it. And you know prices will come down. You're going to suffer the backlash on the freebie side. But for everyone else, they'll be happy. In political war, in, in real warfare, like political warfare, the worst thing you could do is threaten an attack, mobilize, come out from your position of cover in the open, and then sit there and not advance, but not retreat either. It's devastating. You'll get destroyed. That's what they did. All the freebie people are just just angry as hell. But, you know, more well-to-do suburban voters, let's say you aren't getting subsidies, They're angry as hell about the premiums, but the premiums are now being blamed on repeal of Obamacare when they didn't repeal the main elements and they repealed in the worst way, the individual mandate, but not the regs and subsidies. 
as we warned 50 million times, for those of you who heard the show in 2016, 2017, and ironically, the vices of Obamacare are now being blamed on conservative healthcare policy. So, I mean, not only do they just, okay, they, they just lie and they don't do what their thing, you know, what they promise. Okay, so maybe we can come back another day and fight for, give the American people, no, this is what conservatism is about. They find a way to take the conservatism and smear it in the feces that we can't even use it. This is why we will never, ever heal this country until we have a new movement and a new party. Until then, I'm going to do everything I can under the existing structure to push for the right things. I'm not going to abandon that field, but I'm not going to lie to myself either. I'm not going to lie to you. You're always going to hear the truth from me as I believe it in my heart. If you think I'm wrong, I could be wrong. I'm I'm like anyone else. But I'm not going to knowingly BS you. That is where we are. I have the energy and passion I have because I sleep well at night. And because I'm honored to have vendors who will stand behind my words when no one else will speak the truth. You can imagine it's not very... uh, you know, who would want to be someone like me? You know, anyone on the left would say, oh, Daniel's a racist, this or that, you know, all the garbage. But then, you know, everyone on the right says, oh, well, he's not on, the, on, on, on our boat. But Purple Mattresses is one of our most loyal sponsors. Go to purple.com, listen to their, to their uh, video explaining purple mattresses, the perfect balance between softness and firmness. It's a different mattress altogether. They got seat cushions, they got pillows, and with your mattress purchase, you have promo code Daniel. Issue promo code Daniel, D-A-N-I-E-L, and you can get for yourself the most amazing free pillow with that purchase of the mattress. And either way, the first 100 days are free. So if you don't like it after 100 days, you have 100 days to return it. Free shipping to your house. Free returns back to the manufacturer. But I'm telling you guys, you're going to love it. I'm sitting on my cushion right now. And I'm telling you, I'm loving it. I had a problem with the sciatic nerve a couple of couple of months ago it was it, it was just it was really devastating to me um because i sit in this position at my desk for so long and strain myself with you know <laughs> you know it's funny <laughs> whoever said there's no casualties to keyboard warriors you know <laughs> you know it's pretty bad just the pain i had in my hips and then i learned to do these exercises and then i got my purple pillow and it solved it so if any of you do de- desk work in addition to getting yourself a purple mattress, you really want to get a purple seat cushion as well. Uh, let me know what you think. Let me know your experiences. Purple mattresses, the best, most comfortable, most scientifically made mattresses on the face of the universe. Till next time, have a great weekend. God bless, and may God guide us in our future endeavors. Yeah.